please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20, and we will read together John's account of the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, now, by your Spirit, having given us the gospel of your Son, would you grant us your Spirit yet again? You know each of us in this room. You know what we come with. You know what we need. Would you, from the riches the vast and limitless riches of your grace give to each of us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
Holy Week, the week that begins with Palm Sunday and then runs through Resurrection Day, this uh, great day of celebration and victory, Holy Week feels awkward. It feels awkward. At least it feels awkward to me. And it always has. And it feels awkward because of these strange, I mean, they seem strange to me, these strange juxtapositions, the strange weaving together of very different kinds of things, the strange juxtaposition or weaving together of the ordinary with the extraordinary, the common and the sublime, the normal and the utterly abnormal. I think it was Thursday evening during the Monday Thursday service of communion and then tenebrae. At one point, a young child, I think it was a young child, maybe it was an adult, I don't know, but I think someone started crying, at least protesting. And it was it was during one of those periods of silence or near silence during that service. It may have been a distraction to people. I can guarantee you if it was a young child, it was a distraction to the parents. I mean, the last thing that you want in a worship service that's supposed to be sober and reflective and contemplative and respectful is for a child to cry. Or rebel, make noise, resist. But as I listened to that, I actually liked it. And I liked it because it had a humanizing effect in the midst of that service. In fact, I I thought that this thought just kind of passed through my head. This would be nice to be scripted into every Monday, Thursday communion service, every Good Friday service of remembrance. It'd be good to have this scripted into a Holy Saturday Easter vigil. Why? Because if you had been in Jerusalem, for example, in the upper room of the house, where Jesus met for the Passover meal with his disciples, you quite likely would have heard babies crying in the neighboring houses. You quite likely, through the open windows in that upper room, in that building, wherever it was that they had the Passover together, you quite likely would have heard shuffling in the streets below. You quite likely could have heard the bleating of sheep and goats. You quite likely could have heard the grating screeches of chickens in the streets. You may even have heard Passover prayers whispered reverently by fathers in the neighboring houses. We have these services, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, we have these services removed from the day-to-day noise and activity of life. But life goes on. And to me, 
And this is the reason that Holy Week feels so awkward and so conflicted. To me, it feels like life shouldn't go on. Life should stop for this week. I shouldn't be distracted by cutting the grass or writing a sermon. By putting gas in my gas tank, buying groceries, wondering who's going to win the Masters. I shouldn't be distracted by these things. These ordinary, commonplace things. All of that stuff should just stop for the week because all of these extraordinary things are going on. And yet that awkwardness that I feel and that child that cried, whether it was Thursday or Friday, are good and poignant reminders that all of these things, including the resurrection, occurred in the midst, right in the midst of real human activity. The clock didn't stop. Or to use the imagery of Francis Schaeffer, The language of Francis Schaeffer, one of my heroes from decades ago. Life is not lower story and upper story, with lower story stuff being the realm of real and true human activity, and upper stuff just being the realm of spiritual contemplation, reflection, and the place where people spin stuff out of their own imagination and believe it because it makes them feel better. No, life, every moment of every day, is this incredible, mysterious interweaving of the common and the uncommon, the human and the divine, the extraordinary and the ordinary, the natural and the supernatural. It occurred to me the other day that on the first Good Friday, people ate breakfast. It occurred to me the other day that on the first Good Friday, quite likely, a baby was born in Jerusalem. It occurred to me the other day, the first Good Friday, while Jesus' body was being carried to a cross, to be impaled upon that cross, to be rendered lifeless, And then to be placed in a grave on that Sabbath at the end of that Good Friday for that Sabbath. It's quite likely that on that Sabbath day, somebody died. A man, a woman, a heart attack, a cancer. Real stuff happened at that real place. In real time. And again, as Francis Schaeffer so wonderfully put it, if you had been there, you could have taken a picture. Palm Sunday, you could have taken a picture of Jesus walking through the streets, riding on that donkey into Jerusalem, 
During the following week, you could have taken pictures of Jesus going to and fro from Bethany. During the week, you could have taken a picture of Jesus teaching in the temple, sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, talking with his disciples about the desolation and desecration of the temple and the end of the age. If Jesus had had a publicist, the publicist could have been there with a photographer taking pictures of these things. And then his arrest and his arraignment, his interrogation by Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then the execution, the death, the burial. And then from about 5 or 6 p.m. on that Good Friday, and for the next 36 hours, until just before dawn on the first day of the week, 36 hours of excruciating silence. I like to get up early, early on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day. I did that this morning. I was up at 4.20, made my coffee, went outside. It's about 4.40. I like to go outside, just be outside for a few minutes in the dark, looking at the stars, looking at the clouds, feeling the breeze, and thinking about Mary. And thinking about Mary. What would it have been like for Mary to have awakened yesterday morning on the Sabbath in those first few moments of semi-consciousness awake but not awake, aware of the deep pain in your heart. You know how that works? When some tragic thing has happened, when you've lost a loved one, and you wake up the next morning, and you can't quite remember why, but this darkness, this blackness, this anguish, begins to engulf your heart and pierce your soul. And then you become fully conscious and you remember, He died! And for the rest of that day, Mary had to sit at home and do nothing because it was the Sabbath. All day. In her house, can't go anywhere, can't do anything, has to sit and weep and grieve all day long. No master's golf tournament to distract you. Even if there was, you couldn't turn on your television set. And then somehow, At the end of that day, in the midst of darkness, grief still piercing her heart, her soul, she awakens. And now she can do something. Now she can do something. Now she can go. She can go and visit the grave. And she can anoint the body, if she can find someone, together with the other women. If they can find someone, 
to roll away this stone. Move this stone. That's why I like to be outside early on Easter Day, imagining Mary before dawn, before there is light, before the distractions begin again, making her way to the grave. Folks, these things really happened. These extraordinary things in the midst of the ordinary. Now, for those of you who wonder, and I, I, know, I know pretty much all of you, but if there's somebody here who wonders, wonders whether this isn't just so much wishful thinking, wonders whether this isn't the stuff of fairy tale and fiction, wonders whether these early disciples spun these things out of their imagination. Those of you who may have read Dan Brown or who may have seen Tom Hanks' film, you who along with centuries of skeptics think this is some kind of hoax, I'm here to plead with you. I'm here to plead with you that you do some research, that you do some reading. And I have a specific book to recommend. There are many that I could recommend. I'll encourage you to get a copy of Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, and I'll encourage you to read chapter 13, which has to do with the resurrection. And I'll plead with you, not in any way suggesting that your sense of wonder about these things or your doubts about these things, these things are any, in any way unique. Thomas was a doubter even after the resurrection when Jesus met with his disciples. The text later in John's Gospel says that even with Jesus there, some doubted. Doubt is an okay thing. It should not be. It must not be. Please don't let it be a thing that gets between you and determining whether or not these things are worthy of your trust. Don't let doubt get in the way. Read Keller's book. Read chapter 13 of the book. The evidence is there. The evidence is all over the place. From the grave clothes that are mentioned in chapter 20, the reason John was stopped in his tracks is because when he first peered into that empty tomb, what he saw was not a bunch of linens that had been ripped off a body and scattered across the floor of that tomb. What he saw, this is the force of the language, what he saw was all of those linens still perfectly wrapped just as they had been wrapped on Friday, except the body had been released from them freed from them and so those linens with 75 plus pounds of spices had simply collapsed in place and this head cloth that is referred to as being separate from the rest it's not like it was ripped off and tossed into another corner of this room of this grave no the head covering was fully intact probably reflecting the outline of the face of Jesus you see the body was simply freed, released from its bondage to those grave cloths. That's why John was stopped in his tracks, stunned 
Peter, who seems not to be stunned by much of anything, went right into the grave and saw the same thing. And then John came in after him and saw it yet again. The early claims of the Christian church are within a half a generation, 10, 15, at most 20 years of the resurrection of Christ. The early claims are reflected in the New Testament passage we read. The first eight verses, those eight verses that that describe this list of people who were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. They saw him. They ate with him. That list of names, including a a reference to 500 people who saw him at the same time, many of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What that is, is an invitation. It is Paul extending an invitation to skeptics of his day. If you don't believe me, go meet these people. Go interview these people. They'll tell you that it happened. Conspiracy theories have abounded across the centuries explaining, trying to account for the fact that the body was no longer there in the tomb, no longer present. The response, of course, is a sort of a twofold response to these conspiracy theories that the apostles simply conjured this thing because they sought power or they sought reputation or they wanted to create a movement or something like that. The response to that argument is simply twofold. Who dies for a lie? Who persists in telling a lie knowing that Telling that lie would lead to his own death. It happened to James, the brother of Jesus. He was executed. Executed within about 15 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the place where it took place. Who persists in telling a lie when it's going to cost you your life? The other other response is this. These apostles maintained the integrity of their story together through the course of their lives. The details of the story didn't change. They didn't change their story. Compare that. Charles Colson pointed this out years ago. Compare that with what happened following the Watergate experience. John Dean, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Libby, all of the rest of them. What did they do? They turned on each other and they altered their stories to save their own necks. It didn't happen with the disciples. Same story maintained until death. Here's another thing Tim mentions in his book, a couple of things, pretty striking things. If you want to honor the founders of a movement, do you portray your leaders, your founders, as spineless cowards? That's what you find in the gospel narratives. Spineless cowards who abandon Jesus in his moment of greatest need. They're not heroes. They're not heroes. And then there is the business of the role of women. Who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Who were the first to testify that the grave is empty, that the body is not to be found? It is people whose testimony would not be received in law courts. Why in the world 
if you're fabricating a story, would the first witnesses be women? Their word wasn't trusted. Couldn't be received. Luke 24, verse 11. Luke, who, he, who says in the first verses of his gospel, says that he investigated everything thoroughly, means he went to the eyewitnesses. He, he talked to the people. He talked to Peter. He talked to Mary. He talked to the others. Luke says in his gospel, 24:11, that when the women came to report these things to the apostles, what was the response of the apostles? It sounded to them like an idle tale. A bunch of women. Why in the world would the credibility of the centerpiece of the Christian faith rest upon the testimony of women? Can these things be believed? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you question them, May I please beg of you that you do some reading, that you do some research, that you investigate these things because there's a great deal at stake. C.S. Lewis years ago pointed out either this man was and is who he claimed to be God incarnate or he was a liar or he was a lunatic on the level of a man who refers to himself, describes himself as a poached egg. Hi, I'm a poached egg. Hi, I'm the Savior of the world. Either he was the Savior of the world or a madman. And there's an awful lot at stake when it comes to this Jesus Because he is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he die, yet will he live. So if you wonder, I beg you. If you doubt, I beg you. If you are skeptical, I beg you, do some reading. And if you don't wonder, if you have resolved these things in your heart and in your mind, Remember, realize that this is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. These Easter lilies that look like trumpets heralding the victory of Christ over the greatest of your enemies, the enemy of death. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. This is why our celebration should be weeks long and And frankly, it's why I want to take the next weeks instead of going back to Romans to look at some of the post-resurrection experiences. We need narratives. We need to camp on this for a while. We shouldn't let this sort of slip behind us so quickly. These are weeks for celebration. These are weeks to be reminded that Christ is alive. These are weeks in which to be reminded that because Christ is alive and because we are united to him, even though we die, yet will we live. I have a friend, he's planning a church out in California. He's read a little of a contemporary author who has made quite a case of this. I've referred to him in the past, this author making the case that Advent and Christmas, while wonderful, don't begin to hold a candle 
to Resurrection Day and the season of Easter leading up to the ascension of Christ and then the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church at Pentecost. These are the weeks in which we should celebrate. My friend decided that he was going to take this author's advice. He's run into a little trouble with this, and it makes me sad that he has. He called me over the weekend because what he proposed to do with his congregation is greet everybody as they arrive for worship with a glass of champagne. Because what do you do at weddings when you want to celebrate? What do you do at other occasions when you want to honor some great person or some great event? Break out the bubbly. He ran into a bit of trouble with a couple of people in his congregation. Didn't like the idea. Like the old Norwegian woman who was a teetotaler, but who was reminded that it was Jesus who turned the water into wine and who responded by saying, you know, that's the one thing about him I didn't like. (laughs) These are weeks for celebrating, friends. All of God's activities, all of God's works are done in time, in moments in history, and those moments in history should be celebrated. And we should exult in them and glory in them. That's what we'll try to do over these next few weeks, is glory in this first day of the week. You ever think about biblical numerology? You know the sabbatical pattern. You know that in creation God worked quote-unquote, for six days, and then on the seventh day he, quote-unquote, rested, establishing a pattern for the life of the world, the seventh day being the day of completion, the day of fullness. What is the day upon which Jesus was raised from the dead? It wasn't the seventh. It wasn't the Sabbath. It was the eighth day. It was the first day. It is the eighth day, which is the doorway into eternity, into eternal existence. The genealogy of Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. Read Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter. That genealogy is broken into three parts, each consisting of 14 generations. Each of those three parts reflecting a significant epoch in the life of Israel. Abraham to David, David to the exile, the exile to the return. Three sets of 14, but the math of three sets of 14 is also six sets of seven. And at the end of the sixth set of seven, it is Jesus our fullness, our sabbatical, who comes into the world and who by his life and death and resurrection leads us beyond the seven sevens to the 50th, to the year of Jubilee, to eternity, to the eighth day, the first day of the week. These things need to be celebrated. What is the resurrection of Jesus? It is the doorway into eternity. It is the day of hope. It is the day that promises for us final restoration. Don't make of Resurrection Day an odd event in the history of the world. It is the foundation of the church.
It is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is the foundation of your hope. Some of you know this poem. You've, you've heard it. Sometimes you hate to use the, the familiar because it sounds so predictable or because it's familiar people pay no attention to it. But I have to read this poem by John Updike of all people. Seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb and make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom, let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. There are people in pulpits Forgive me this. There are people in pulpits whom I would have read this poem and answer me concerning the historicity, the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. Make not of the resurrection an odd event in the history of mankind. It is the foundation of your faith. It is the foundation of the church. And it is the foundation of your hope. The hope. The final restoration. I had a dream when I was a young kid. It was a recurring dream. 
In my dream, I was standing on 2nd Street in Niles, Michigan, right outside Parmalee's department store. Right across the street was Blackman's Jewelers. But next to the doorway into Blackman's Jewelers was a brick wall. And my recurring dream was this. I looked across the street and I saw the wall open up. And I saw an escalator. And on the escalator were my father and my mother and my sister. And I was left alone. And it terrified me. Being alone. Being separated. Being cut off. Being removed. From what, at least in my small mind, even in the midst of my family's craziness and dysfunction, was still home. There's a great scene at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Sam and Frodo have delivered the ring to its destruction. They're lying on these pieces of rock, and it seems that the whole world is going to be consumed in flames. But then Sam wakes up, and he realizes that Gandalf is in the room. And Sam lay back and stared with open mouth for a moment, living between bewilderment and great joy. He could not speak. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Oh, he himself burst into tears. Then... A sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer. His tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Because of the resurrection, this is your hope. The former things have passed away. All things have begun to be made new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We adore you, we marvel, and we beg you at the reality 
of this glorious resurrection would so inform, so shape, so penetrate our hearts that we with Sam, by your grace, would leap from our beds, even in the midst of our struggles and discouragements, with a sense of anticipation that one day music will engulf the whole of the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord Jesus, in your name do we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing.